the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. I'm joined now by my friend Arthur Brooks. He is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, where he holds the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Free Enterprise. He is a Washington Post columnist. He will soon be on the faculty of the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. He is sadly an economist, but a happy one, and he's my pal. Arthur, welcome back. Good to have you on the program. Congratulations on Love Your Enemies. This is a magnificent new book. Thank you, Hugh, and wonderful to be on America's Greatest Radio Show. Congratulations (laughs) on your just continuing success. Well, thank you. I want to begin by asking you a question on a publishing side. How hard did it take, how much effort did it take to get your publishers to agree to the title, Love Your Enemies? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, well... It's funny. Believe it or not, after a lot of discussions with the publisher, it was the publisher, Eric Nelson himself, at, at, at Broadside Books at HarperCollins, who said, well, why don't we just call it Love Your Enemies? That's what you're talking about, right? So not that much work. Oh, good. Um, I'm glad to hear that. Now I have a yeah, story no, to tell you. Pushing it through the market. You, you, <laughs> right? are, you are a big proponent of story in the book, Love Your Enemies. So I have a story for you. Yesterday, I was traveling with the Fessinger, Mrs. Hewitt, actually two days ago, back from Oakland, uh, where we had been in San Francisco to see Hamilton to uh, to Southern California and in a very crowded airport lounge for frequent flyers, a very loud man who may or may not have recognized me began in loud terms to berate the president in dehumanizing terms, uh, calling him just about every name in the book. I brought your book out and put it on the table. It had no impact on him, and so I finally moved. I, I think he was doing it for my benefit, but he was engaged in someone with whom he was not traveling, and I thought to myself, this is why I despair of your project, Arthur. I think yeah, we're no, poisoned. Yeah, no, I understand. We, no, no, no. It, it's not that you think we're poisoned, Hugh. We are poisoned, and that's why I wrote the book. Uh, periodically, this happens in the United States, usually in the decade or decade and a half following a financial crisis, when when the rewards of economic growth, America's promise that tends to be highly uneven, going to the top 20% in income distribution. We have populism, we have polarization, and we have, I mean, the amazing thing to me, Hugh, I mean, to talk about how, how poisoned we are, one in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of politics. You know, you and I both know that love is the nuclear fuel of happiness, and we have a happiness catastrophe because of this polarization. It's not just about politics. It's about, it's about love. There are two standout statistics in the book Love Your Enemies by Arthur Brooks. It's in bookstores now. It's available at Amazon. It will be linked at HughHewitt.com. I encourage you to get it not only for yourself but for your family, friends, and anyone with whom you've stopped talking. One is that one in six people have stopped talking to a family member as a result of politics. The other is that 72,000 people died of overdose in 2017. Yeah, no, that's right. And these are, 
you know, the despair that's coming across the country is we are we're lashing out at other people with whom we have ideological differences. I mean, Hugh, just ideological differences. I mean, and, and if to, to, I realize that we all have very strong opinions. You and I are, are, are strong conservatives, both of us. We agree on, as far as I can tell, almost every issue. And, and yet, and as is the case in our lives, everybody's life, everybody listening to us, if I ask for a show of hands, although this is a radio so we can't see, I will ask our listeners, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? A hundred percent of these hands are going up right now. And this is very profound and very important. We're, we, we're not talking to people with whom we disagree politically because we've blown that up in this polarized environment. We've turned ideological differences into, into the, the material of hate, of, no, contempt, which is even worse. This is, this is, in fact, the theme of the book, Love Your Enemies, that a culture of contempt will kill the people who indulge it. But it's also damn difficult to eradicate once it takes uh, root, Arthur Brooks. And your, your analogy to Nazi Germany and the dehumanizing uh, rhetoric used against rats there, it is now not just a province of the left or right. It is on both extremes, and it is spreading. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, the most amazing thing is this book has been out for a week now, and it's been it's been in the news. It's been I've been on, I've done a lot of television, as we always do when the book comes out. And the criticism that I'm getting is, if a person criticizes it from the left, they say this is all about Donald Trump. And if it's a person on the right, they say this is all about the the new the new socialists. It, they only see their opponent in this. You know, this is really problematic. You know, another statistic in the book that 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 really really stood out for me, is that 93% of Americans hate how divided we've become. They hate it. And yet, they participate in it because of a form of addiction. I even go, in the book, I go through the brain science of the addiction to contempt toward our, our fellow men. I want to come back to that, but first I'd like for you to explain, in, in your inimitable fashion, motive attribution asymmetry. It's a new term to me. It's one I'm internalizing because it seems to me to be appropriate, uh, as well as confirmation bias, but motive attribution asymmetry is a genuinely new and I think important term for people to to understand. So motive attribution asymmetry, kind of a fancy set of terms cooked up by professional academics because, you know, we got to get tenure somehow, right? Huh. And, and But it was – political scientists have found, a case, have found cases, particularly after, after warfare, when, when people are, are – the Palestinians and Israelis, for example, where both sides feel that they are motivated by love, but that the other side is motivated by hatred toward them. Now, both sides can't be right. Both can be wrong, but both sides can't be right. Now, the reason the reason that I bring up motive attribution asymmetry in this book is because for the first time since they've been keeping records on this subject, that political scientists find that Democrats and Republicans have the same level of motive attribution asymmetry. I am motivated by love. They are motivated by hatred, the same level as the Palestinians and Israelis in that conflict in the Middle East. It's, it's incredible. We, don't, we, we simply can't attribute human characteristics to the other side anymore. Now, it doesn't say, I'm not saying that one, both sides are right or we need mushy moderation but that's catastrophic it is catastrophic but the way out is to me um improbable let's begin with the obvious thing which is that anonymity anonymity is a killer online it kills the people who wield it it kills the people against whom it is wielded but it is everywhere and i don't see any major market leader moving to remove anonymity as a feature of their platform because it creates clicks 
Yeah, no, that's right. Anonymity is uh, when you have, it's actually two things simultaneously. When you have mechanisms like social media, which can massively propagate the message of people, ordinary people, everybody can be a, a columnist on the scale of, 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 of Krauthammer, of George Will, of Hugh Hewitt. Everybody can do it on social media simply because the stuff can get around. And then if you, you take the dehumanization that comes because you're anonymous, and by the way, everybody knows that when you dehumanize another person, take away their humanity, you can do terrible things to them. The point that I make in this book is that when we when we are anonymous ourselves, when we choose to be anonymous online, we dehumanize ourselves. We, we subtract our own humanity, and as such, we are choosing to behave worse than we ordinarily would as people. This is a scourge. This is a, an epidemic, a cancer, a, a metastasis on the body politic. But, but one of the key things I point out, and, and, and this is a very practical argument in the book, this is what should concern people just as much. It, it, it makes us unpersuasive. If we're trying to be in the business of convincing people that our point of view is correct, we're not going to do it. On the contrary, we're going to get a reaction called the boomerang effect that takes people who disagree with us and pushes them in the other direction. And, and here's the worst part of all, the more we are anonymous, the more we are hateful, the more we are contemptuous, the less happy our lives are going to be. And I've got the proof in this book. Now the proof is there. I, I must also say, as I was reading Love Your Enemies, there is a part in it which you said, uh, you should be feeling guilty at this point. And, of course, I do. I've been doing this for 20 years. And I can tell you the occasions in which I've had to undress people in public. And it's not pleasant, but it's necessary. I try not to do it in a wounding way, but inevitably it embarrasses people to be exposed as out of their depth or without a, a knowledge base or to have said something completely apart from reality. But it's my job. And I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know how we can change media into it, it all can't be Bill Buckley. We're not that good, and it's not that profitable. You know, Hugh, let me stop you there for a second. I've been a fan of yours from, from for a long time, long before I knew you personally and we became friends. And, and I've never heard you behave with contempt. Let's define the term. Contempt is to treat somebody as utterly worthless. It's not anger. It's What it does is it takes anger and mixes it with disgust. Disgust is to treat another person as a pathogen. I've heard you criticize other people. I've heard you dress other people down because they're factual inaccuracies. But, but Hugh, you have always behaved with Christian charity and never with contempt toward another person. So you have to do what you have to do. And in my book, people will see that I never say that we have to be agreeable. I never say that we have to agree. On the contrary, disagreement is a secret to excellence and strength as a country. The point is that when we disagree with contempt, we will not be persuasive. We will have permanent enemies. We will hurt the country and we will be unhappy as people. We and will have to do that. And you're very persuasive in making this case. And by the way, thank you for what you just said. I wish I was that perfect. I do try and keep in mind C.S. Lewis' admonition from the weight of glory. You have never met an ordinary human being. It is either an eternal wonder or an everlasting horror. And the, your deep Catholicism, which I share with you, is suffused in this book. But let me ask you, Arthur, I am so disappointed that Benedict gave up, and I am so disappointed that Francis won't. The defense of people who are implicitly or compl obviously connected with this abuse scandal, our, our church is collapsing around us. 
Well, they are. And you see the rise of the nuns, by which I don't mean N-U-N-S. I mean N-O-N-E-S, people who have no religion. Uh, you see this not just in Roman Catholicism, but in Protestantism as well, people who don't identify with, an, with a religion. And a big part of this is because many of the churches have abdicated the responsibility to show people their own deep humanity, to bring people together with the bonds of love. You know, the, the churches were places where people who deeply disagreed with each other would worship together such that they could see what was more important. And in today's siloed society, where you can curate your friends and go to only a college where everybody shares your ideology and get whipped up by radicalized you know, faculty, if you want, where you can make sure that you never read anything with which you disagree, you can live in a community where everybody, disagree, where everybody agrees with you, and you can even attend a church that, that, that shares your basic ideology. That's hugely problematic, and, and, and we're reaping the rewards. Now, I am talking with Arthur Brooks. His brand new book is Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. It is a book of hope. I would, I would beg every pastor out there to assign it to your congregation in small group book study, even though it is not a book for Christians, it is written by a Christian man from a Christian worldview that embraces, you know, here we are, breaking news, a gunman on the loose shooting several people on a tram in the Dutch city of Utrecht. Last week, New Zealand. Two weeks ago, Boko Haram killed 120 people in, in Africa. We're under a lot of stress, Arthur Brooks, and I don't know that it's rational for people to love your enemies when you expect to be run over by a truck on the side of a road by a fanatic. Yeah, of course. And, and and what I'm not saying is trust everybody to take care of you. Trust no one to do you harm. But here's, you said it's a book of hope, so let's be hopeful. And I know we've got more segments to make this case. Yes. But the, in, in point of fact, I had a major turning point in my life as I was writing this book, Hugh. You and I are institutional guys. We're looking for solutions based on leaders or government or CEOs or, or, or something at the top of the, or sort of the hierarchy of the pecking order. And I recognized I wasn't going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to get media to, 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 to have the scales fall from their eyes and suddenly have this, some moral reconciliation with truth. It's not going to happen. What, why? Because you told me now, you told me, and you and I talked about this before, there's too much money to be made. So I went back in history to look at social movements and how they actually got started. They never got started by, by converting leaders. They got started by helping people understand that when they had a personal conversion, whether it affected society or not, they would be happier, better people, and so they would demand something different in their own lives. This is a book of self-improvement, not just of trying to save the media or saving politics. I will tell you what did make me hopeful. Uh, as I was discussing this online, and I've been prolific in my tweets about Love Your Enemies, Governor Doug Ducey, easily one of the most responsible and effective elected officials in the United States, tweeted at me, there's got to be an answer, to which I responded, maybe the National Governors Association can embrace as a project. How do you bring intellectual diversity and respect onto the campuses? And how he did that after Parkland. He convened all the stakeholders to interview, uh, to figure out the stop orders, the severe threat of, of, of violence protective orders. I think there is a role here for governors to actually lead that maybe our national leaders can't do. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's arguable that Doug Ducey of Arizona is the best governor in America today. Uh, he's certainly um, one of my absolute favorites and, and, and a friend who has embraced a lot of the ideas and love your enemies. That does not mean that he has an ounce of mushy moderation. Oh, zero. And, and if we have, no, no. And if we have, if we, by the way, if we have progressives listening to us today, which I know we do because this is such a popular show, you and I are not advocating that they should not be progressives either. I mean, have the courage of your convictions. Stand up for what you believe, be informed, and at the same time, disagree without contempt. Disagree without treating people as utterly worthless. You will have a much higher likelihood of changing people's minds. You'll be more persuasive to people that watch your interactions, and you'll be a happier, more successful person. This is my guarantee. Yeah, I had uh, uh, Howard Schultz on last week, and it was a wonderful conversation because he's a wonderful guy. I persuaded a few uh, third-tier Democrats to come on yet, and I'm hoping Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg judge comes on very soon. But the guy who I don't think I'll get, though I've made the appeal, is the vice president. And that's because he's the front runner, and there's not much upside in going even onto a responsible center-right show. I want to play for you something he said yesterday, um, Arthur Brooks, that plays right into Love Your Enemies and get your comment on it and what's happening to our rhetoric. Cut number 10. Because, folks... We have to we have to bring this country back together again. And look, I believe I believe we're at an inflection point. I really mean it. I believe we're at an inflection point. The election in 2020, without hyperbole, is going to be the most important election this country has undergone in over a hundred years. Not a joke. There's so much at stake. Our core values are being shredded. Our standing on the world stage is at risk. I still travel the world. I still meet with head of states all over the world. They're confused. They're concerned. They wonder where we are. Our democracy. Our democracy is under threat. The danger posed by this administration to this nation is not hypothetical or exaggerated. It's real. So Arthur Brooks, he begins by saying we have to bring our country together again and then uh, devolves into rhetoric that suggests to any Trump supporter out there that they are a threat to the country's existence. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and, you know, he, he, he started well and it did poorly. Why? Because he started off by saying we need to unite, and then he divided with fear. This is a classic rhetorical technique. It's very powerful for stimulating dopamine in people's brains. It also stimulates the reward centers. It's something called the nucleus accumbens in the middle of the brain. He's doing this. It's a very common thing. Politicians do it a lot. But that will not only is it ineffective, not only is it counterproductive, it actually doesn't win in the end. It can win if you You've got three weeks left in an election, but if you've got a year and a half, which is what we're talking about, he should be talking about hope. How did President Obama win? I mean, you and I both regretted the fact that he won, but it's pretty clear how he did it. A, a year before the election, he was using the language of hope, and that's what actually can bring the country back together again and fire people up a year in advance. But the reason it won't work, and give me your response to this, is because I do my missionary work on MSNBC. I always tell people who yell at me for going on and that's my missionary work. Uh, but 
They're having an MSNBC primary, and they're not going except in little tiny bits to people like Chris Wallace and Brett Baer. They're not going near uh, Dennis Prager or Hugh Hewitt or Mike Gallagher when they should be doing that. But there's their professional staff is telling them there's no upside in that. Arthur Brooks, at the end of Love Your Enemies, you would say, yes, there is, if you know how to talk to the other side. Yeah, if you actually are, are, are willing to do the work. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that notwithstanding the fact that these are pretty profitable television networks, not all of them, they don't know everything. And the truth is they're not willing to do the work. It's, it's astonishing to me how short-termist a lot of the media actually are. Again, there's a lot that shows that if you use negativity and fear, you can get people to react in a very short time frame. But people will not keep up that energy for a long period of time. If, you, if you're trying to work over a year or two years, if, if you want a, a 10-year strategic plan to do something, you have to use positivity, hope, and bring people together. And this is simply not the way that the, that the television networks and the, most of the media are geared right now. What's interesting is I'm very proud of the fact that my company, Salem, has built itself over the course of the 40 years it's existed and the 20 years I've been here by emphasizing the core values that you talk about, which is the mutual respect for everybody, even as we have our deep disagreements. That said, now I want to ask you about one of my major problems. I am deeply suspicious of some institutions, and I try not to be paranoid. I'm suspicious of the IRS's treatment of the Tea Party. I am suspicious of the FBI and the CIA's treatment of President Trump's campaign. I am suspicious that the media did not find out what we now know about Beto O'Rourke through two years of the most intensely covered Senate campaign, and Reuters sat on the story. Arthur, does the right have a right to be suspicious of the ability to ever expect reciprocity from the left. Um, well, of course we have reason to be suspicious because, you know, we've seen it over and over again. You know, as they used to say, it's, you're not paranoid if people are actually out to get you. Now, and I understand that there are institutional biases that are built in, but that does not mean that we have to ruin our own lives with misery. I can be perfectly suspicious. Look, I have teenage kids, too. <laughs> I, know, I know suspicion, man. And, and, it, and yet my puppet, bonds of puppet. love with them are un... <laughs> that was the funniest line in the book. Because I can just hear your kids calling each other puppet. You better tell that story, Arthur. <laughs> well, you know, I'm talking in, in the book about ad hominem, which is, you know, when you, when you talk about the motives of other people, it's the worst way to argue. It's like, I know what you really want. No, you don't. We don't know what each other really wants, and so we should never assume so. And I was talking about how the, you know, the, the lowest moment in the presidential debates in the run-up to the 2016 election, where, where Hillary Clinton says that you know, the Russians don't, don't respect uh, Donald Trump because he's a puppet. And they started going back and forth, calling each other, no, you're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. It was the most absurd, childish moment in the debates. And, and, and after since then, my teenage kids have referred to each other as puppets. Yes. <laughs> I just, I, and by the way, that underscores how silly our political rhetoric can be, but also how damningly destructive it can be when we don't do it regularly. We do not. I, I think you put in the book, we have to practice disagreement at every level, not just presidential debates, but every day on every radio show and every television show, we ought to actually bring in our best opponents and allow them the opportunity to state their case and be willing to be shown to be, on that day in that place, not their equal. 
Absolutely, Hugh. I mean, the whole idea of steel manning your opponent's arguments makes you strong. When, when I was coming through, when I was finishing my PhD, um, and I was J- James Q. Wilson, the great political scientist, was my mentor. And you know, I was going, I was becoming an assistant professor, and I asked him, Jim, Jim, what do you do when you're conservative in academia? I mean, everybody knows it's not a, a, a pl- you know, it's not the, the friendliest environment for conservatives. And he said, simple. He was a great conservative, taught at Harvard for many years, and he said, you simply have to be twice as productive and four times as nice as your colleagues, and everything will be okay. <laughs> How do you hold yourself up to high standards? And the answer is by steel manning the arguments of the other side, not being afraid to take them on, and taking them on with the bonds of love. We're talking about Americans here, Hugh. This is not ISIS that we're talking about, because somebody's a Democrat. And look, I have very strong views, and so do you, but the idea of isolating ourselves is very unpersuasive. We're never, you're never going to get 100% vanquish the other side. Nobody listening to us even wants to live in a one-party state. So we actually have to start understanding not how we disagree less, but how to disagree better. That disagree better, and it requires practice. Now, I want to tell people I violated the prime directive of the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's sort of like a Star Trek no-no. I never give a guest a question in advance, but I did to Arthur last night because I wanted to think about it. That is, I wanted two or three examples from both the liberal and the conservative worlds of influential and responsible one thinkers, two economists, three religious figures, and four elected officials so that we could, in the words of Arthur Haley, often quoted by Lamar Alexander, find the good and praise it. Did you come up with a list for me, Arthur? Yeah. So, and, and when I was thinking about this, I prayed about this too, Hugh. Um, you know, I have I, you know, a list of state and local politicians, people that some people have heard of, like Doug Ducey. We just talked about some uh, public officials, the former Speaker of the Florida House, Will Weatherford, who's going to he'll be back in politics soon. One of the most uniting people I've ever met, who's just a winning machine. I think about religious figures, uh, you know, the, the, some of the people that you've talked about on your program, certainly some that I have. Have, you know, Archbishop Chaput, um, Jose Garcia, who's the Archbishop of Los Angeles, people who are uniting, they have strong views, but they're uniting, or, 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 or traditional figures. Martin Luther King, who refused to hate his enemies. He refused to treat them with contempt. But, but on, on more reflection, I thought, you know, I'm answering this wrong. Once again, I'm coming at it from the point of view of famous people showing the rest of us how we can live. The truth is that right now, we need to be like the in the post-Civil War era. In the post-Civil War era, the country was just ripped apart. And political scientists are showing us that America is as polarized as it is at any time since the Civil War. So how did the country come back together? And it wasn't with inspirational leaders. We had, we had terrible leaders like William Jennings Bryan in that post-war period that were trying to rip us apart again. And what brought the country together was the self-improvement movement. It was the enlightenment that came from religious conversion. In other words, it was ordinary Americans who said, I am unhappy. I refuse to do this. I'm going to fight back and, and change their own hearts and their own lives so they could be happier, more successful people. And in so doing, they brought the country back together. In other words, my heroes are the people listening to us who say, I'm turning off the haters. I'm going to go meet, make friends with people that I don't know, and they're not going to be my enemies going forward. And I'm going to have a new life and a happier life and a more successful life. And I'm 
be more persuasive, and that will create the demand that guys like you and me that are going to have to follow. Well, let me ask you what you do in the aftermath or even during the course of a meltdown like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. He was, in my view, a just man unjustly treated, the perfect problem of injustice discussed by Plato in the Republic. A just man unjustly treated. Now, some of my audience will disagree with that, but it did have one powerful effect on both left and right. It blew everybody out of the water and made people angry beyond anything I have seen since the Clarence Thomas hearing. We can't accept that that set level, uh, Arthur Brooks. No, we can't. We actually can't keep that energy up. The good news is that Americans won't keep up that, that, that level of contempt. Now, there, there's one small minority of people that will try. That's what I call in the book the outrage industrial complex. Yep. What I'm going to try to do is to, to, to foment not contempt, but maybe a little bit of resentment on the people listening today. You know, there is, if 93% of us hate how divided we've become as a country, even, even though we disagree and have strong views, that means 7% like how polarized we've become as a country country, hate, love how divided we've become, because it's a, it's a way of life. It's, a, it's actually a business. And, and I don't mean necessarily getting rich, although a lot of people have gotten rich on the basis of this. There are people who get clicks, who get satisfaction, who get a strange kind of perverse thrill from the fact that people hate each other and want it to keep going. Well, it's time for us to take back our independence. And, and you know, what a lot of people see, saw in the Kavanaugh hearings, and, and, and they will see more and more things like that, but where it's not just left on right, it's right on left, or right on right, and left on left. And this is common, man, when, when we think about what the, the presidential campaign is going to look like in the Democratic Party, it's going to be a rumble. You know, people will say, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really sick of this. Already, I'm seeing the, the energy dispersing uh, on social media. And you start to see, you're going to start seeing the numbers to show this, to prove this, I believe, that people just can't keep up the negative energy that long. And when we fight back, it'll go a lot faster. You know, uh, Arthur, I'm actually of the opinion that cable news is going to have to change, that they're going to exhaust their audiences, that we can't watch the same agreements about hatred every day on from the usual suspects saying the usual suspect things to each other over and over again. I don't think it's good entertainment. Yeah, that's right. It is. It, that's exactly. That's exactly my point. And we've seen it in the past. And where people basically say, it's just I don't know what happened. I just got bored. I just started turning it off. And you're gonna. You're actually gonna see things start to turn the corner. I mean, the, the outrage industrial complex is gonna continue to try to gin this thing up on the right and the left over and over and over again. But pretty soon, Americans. I mean, as the, the, the next few years progress, look, that the left might be so outrageous as, as they take America from rail to rail, and they're and they're going toward these weird fringy things. I mean, it's so funny, Hugh. I mean, the, the, the Democrats really have one thing to do, which is to be normal and not weird. That's the one directive for Democrats, and that's the one thing they can't seem to be able to do. And so maybe the outraged industrial complex can keep us ginned up for a little bit longer, but not forever. You know, the, the we, book, we're going to refuse to be unhappy. The book I read right before yours, Unjust by Noah Rothman on social justice and the unmaking of America, is the real poison. It's identitarianism. And you talk about it a lot in Love Your Enemies. We have to get away from that. And that's a religious calling. It's not just a civic calling. It's a religious calling. 
for sure. I mean, one of the things is, as a religious calling, every major religion and every secular ethical tradition, they understand that we must be fully human. And to be fully human, what that means is to bond with other people with our common human stories. The problem with identitarianism or identity politics or whatever you want to call it is we reduce ourselves and we reduce other people to one dimension. I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. I'm a Catholic. I'm, I'm a bald guy. I'm whatever. As long as I'm using that as a source of my rights or my, the identity where I get my power or I'm reducing you to something along those lines, what I've said is we don't have a common human story. And that's a, that becomes a source of weakness and more importantly, it becomes a source of unhappiness. And, and that's what we need to fight against because we deserve to be happy. So I want to I make sure we close with our last eight minutes by going to the practical Arthur Brooks, one of which, one thing that you said in this book was echoed quite um, uh, randomly yesterday by our senior program director for the whole company, sent out a note to some of the senior talk show hosts, never engage with an anonymous person. He, he was talking about there's just no upside in it. There's no, there's no reason to ever do that. Uh, make your case in your, on your show. Phil Boyce is very smart, and, he, and by the way, he agrees with Arthur Brooks, who says over and over again, never engage with an anonymous critic. Yeah, that's true. And Phil Boyce is a smart guy. And and one of the things that I, I talk about in this book is that you have a responsibility to love all other people. But when somebody takes away their own their own personhood by being anonymous on social media, they said, I'm not a human. And you can't engage with another person who's saying I'm not a human. It's impossible because that person is not engaging in good faith. So the two things that I recommend, two things for individuals is, number one, never be anonymous on the Internet. Repudiate it. Say everything under your own name. You'll be empowered and happier. Number two, never engage with somebody who's anonymous, no matter how tempting it is and no matter how much they provoke you. The third thing is actually the, the, my piece of advice to the social media companies. This is an existential threat. They will wind up being wiped out because anonymity is destroying their platforms. Is As satisfying as it is, like scratching poison ivy, people don't like it. And so they need to find a way to fight against the anonymity to, to, to verify people's identities. And they need to do it now. I have urged Jeff Bezos to turn Amazon Prime into Twitter because everyone has to pay to be part of Amazon Prime. And if you had, to, if you could only be on a Twitter that was populated by Amazon Prime members, then it would be a good Twitter. Uh, people would act responsibly, and they would kill Twitter off in the meantime. I want to talk very quickly about your five specifics. Stand up to the man, escape the bubble, say no to contempt, disagree better, and tune out, disconnect from unproductive debates. There are lengthy discussions of each of these. Do you see in your readers to date a willingness to do any or all of those things? When we are talking to each other as humans, whether we disagree or not, and you know, you and I have dear friends on the political left, both of us do. Yes. And when we're talking with them, we do this all the time. We go outside our comfort zone. We say, I think, I'm tr- I, think I know what you're trying to get at. Let's talk about better ways to get at these objectives. We, we don't hate each other. We all agree. When you're talking to your left-wing friends, you agree that there's a big problem in the media, and you don't want to have your fear and anger and contempt ginned up. And, and furthermore, when you're with your closest friends, you do tune out the unproductive debates because, you know what, they're just so boring. So what I'm 
suggesting in all of these things is love more. I mean, really love more. I mean, do the thing that your heart actually desires. In so doing, you'll be a persuasive person. You'll be a happier person. You'll be a more successful person. And maybe, just maybe, in the years down the line, we'll help save America. Now, I want to thank you as well for introducing me to the knowledge of the important book by Margaret Wise Brown. Of course, Goodnight Moon is one of my children's favorite. But I have grandchildren now that I have to read, too. So they'll be hearing about the important book. But on page 202, you borrow her phrase, her, her style, and you write about contempt. The important thing about contempt is that it is bad for us. Sometimes we don't like people who disagree with us, and we want to tell them that they are idiots, and social media makes it easy to do, and pundits get rich by doing it, and maybe it seems that some of them deserve our contempt, but the important thing about contempt is that it's bad for us. (laughs) Well said! Thank you. It's a new children's book written by Hugh Hewitt and Arthur Brooks. Uh, but but I, I, I do think that if, if we can spread that message, it would go a long way. Let me close by asking you about the church, not just the Catholic church, but the Christian church. Uh, part of the problem is that the common bonds of Judeo-Christian belief have frayed in this country. I talked last night with a great scholar of religion uh, about what's going on in the United States, and the nuns are out there. Do you see any prospect of a religious revival? Any at I all? I I do. I do see, and the reason is because historically this is how this is how things have gone. After the civil, once again, after the Civil War, the self improvement uh, mission, which was an apostolic but secular mission, was matched up with the tent revivals and the the introduction of the Baptists and the Methodists in mass numbers around the United States. When people are desperate, they look for something better, and this is the chance for the church, and, and most importantly for the people who are the who make up the church, the people who make up the bonds of brotherly love, which is refracted. God's love. You know, and this is the key thing for us to remember. Contempt, which is racking our culture, is an opportunity. How each of us reacts to contempt is the opportunity for us to change our own hearts. That is the central apostolic m- mission. And so that's how I close the book. I say, look, I saw it. I saw it. I saw a sign going out of a chapel where I do marriage prep training, my wife and I do, the young couples. And it was a sign for people going out into the parking lot. It said, for the people going out, and it said, you are now entering mission territory. And so basically, when you go and you listen to the radio and you go on social media and you hear contempt directed at you, that's your opportunity to change your own heart, to be happier, to be more effective. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with a leader. It doesn't start with a talk show host. It doesn't start with your favorite columnist, it starts with each one of us remembering that when we when we turn off this conversation, we go about our days, we are now entering mission territory. Well said and a great place to end. The new book is Love Your Enemies by Arthur C. Brooks, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. It is a wonderful book, Arthur. Congratulations. Good luck and make sure that it gets on. I know book tours are a pain in the neck, especially when you're talking about difficult things, but, but good luck in pressing through it. You know, it's a it's a privilege to be able to talk about good and affirming things. And every day I get to talk to my friend Hugh Hewitt on the greatest radio show in America. It's a great day. Thank you, Arthur. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. I want to talk to you for a moment about a group I've done work with for years, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. You've seen how your freedom is under attack. Go to townhallreview.com to find out how you can join Alliance Defending Freedom to help ensure the opponents of freedom don't dictate your future. That's townhallreview.com. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.